On Saturday, the death was announced of Irish businessman Ben Dunn. He was 74. He was a princeling. Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole remembers Ben Dunn's extraordinary life and how his public misconduct had a huge but unintended impact on this country. He was raised to be the head of one of the most successful native Irish companies. He experienced extreme trauma when he was kidnapped. That in turn led to this extraordinary episode with cocaine and hookers in Florida, which was his fall. And then he was subsequently ousted from the company. And that ouster in turn led to us discovering um, just how corrupt Charlie Hawhey was. So he had an extraordinary life and an extraordinary place in contemporary Irish history. That's the synopsis, but there's a lot more to it. This story even features you too at one point. For the rest, including Finton's own strange encounter with Ben Dunn as a teenager, keep listening. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Chapalak. Today, the life and legacy of the late Ben Dunn. Fintan, you've written in the Irish Times this week about the tale of two American hotels, one in New York, the other in Orlando, which in your words became ground zero back in 1992 for the detonations that toppled the twin towers of church and state. In fact, you've also written that both hotels should have blue plaques stating that, quote, conservative Ireland died here. One of the incidents you're referring to is about the man we're talking about today, Ben Dunn, who sadly died at the weekend. But before we talk about him, Fintan, can you take us back to what happened in the other American hotel in 1992? The two hotels are the, the Grand Hyatt in New York and the Grand Cypress in Orlando. The Grand Hyatt in New York was where in August of 1991, Annie Murphy, who was the former lover of Bishop Eamon Casey, the Catholic Bishop of Galway, uh, probably the most well-known, charismatic public bishop, you know, uh, at the time. She had been his lover. They had, a, they had a son, Peter. She was trying to get a final settlement from him in terms of Peter's education and paying for, for, for Peter's education. So she had somebody, a friend of hers, hide while she met Casey in the Grand Hyatt with a camcorder, that's old technology, and film the encounter. I've never seen the film, but it was very important. Uh, So apparently it captured mostly the back of Eamon Casey's head, but it did get a moment when the two of them kissed. That was really important because that was one of the key pieces of evidence that convinced the great Irish Times journalist Conor O'Cleary to pursue the story that, you know, Casey had been paying money out of diocesan funds for, for, for Annie Murphy and Peter. Um, you know, it was obviously, a, if you're a journalist, I mean, that's a really powerful piece of corroboration. Um, and, and so that would lead in 92 to the breaking of the story about Casey and Annie Murphy. So that was the scandal that rocked the church. What we were reminded of this week by Ben Dunn's passing was a scandal that rocked the political establishment. So six months after the filming in, in the Grand Hyatt, you have the infamous incident in, in Orlando uh, where Ben Dunn uh, goes on a golfing trip, ostensibly, and buys 
40 grams of cocaine. I, mean, mm. I, I, I don't use cocaine, but I, even I have some idea that 40 grams is quite a lot. <laughs> and I wonder, was it the habit of a lifetime of buying and buying it wholesale, you know? <laughs> Maybe. And because, you know, when, when, even though he had been taking it all weekend, by the t- you know, when police, when the police came, they, they found like 38 grams still in the bag, you know? Right. <laughs> so, uh, so he was indulging greatly in cocaine. He was up on the 17th floor of the hotel with a sex worker that he had hired, I think just for company. Uh, you know, it's something terribly sad about all this, of course. And, uh, yeah. but, but taking huge amounts of cocaine and then had a kind of psychotic episode. Uh, went out on the balcony. I think she was afraid he was going to throw himself off or whatever. She goes down, gets the security uh, detail in the hotel, took him up. They called the police in turn. And of course, that's... That moment, that weird moment, is when is, is the origin story of the fall of Charlie Holly, <laughs> the revelation of the Ansbacker accounts, this, this infamous tax evasion scheme that the great and the good in Ireland were running. And I want to come back to those details in a minute, Fintan. Before I move on with Ben Dunn, there was one other actor or a couple of other actors who were present in that Florida hotel that night who just add an element of comedy to the entire thing that is difficult to believe. Can you remind us who else was in that hotel? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, this is where the movie just becomes, you know, ah, come on, give us a break. <laughs> you know, it couldn't be true. So also, simultaneously on the 17th floor of the same hotel is U2. Uh, U2 are preparing to launch what at the time, and, and maybe subsequently, you know, was, was by far the most spectacular rock tour ever, you know, the Zoo TV tour. Uh, and they were rehearsing in Orlando, <laughs> and they were. So w- when the sex worker goes down to the head of security in the hotel to tell him that an Irishman has gone crazy up on the seventeenth floor, the security people assume all oh, of these bloody rock bands. You know, <laughs> of course, it's this They're Irish rock band. You know, and of course, as we know, you two would never do such a thing. So Bono. Uh, was telling me he he hears somebody says there's an Irish guy named Dunn who's gone crazy uh, with drugs in the hotel. People of a certain age will remember that the most notorious drug family in Dublin for a long time was were the Dunns. They were not the same as <laughs> the Dunn stores. They were the people who brought heroin into Ireland. And so so Bono thinks, oh, it's one of the Dunns, one of those Dunns, you know. And yeah, then yeah. Ben Dunn is carried by two policemen on poles. So if you can imagine movies where you've seen, uh, you know, people out hunting and they've, they've captured a, or killed a deer and they're, they're carrying it hogtied on a, on a pole back. So he's been carried on a pole out through the, the lobby of the hotel. And I think it's one of the great lines of Irish history. In the meantime, Ben Dunn had ordered a, a second sex worker to come. She's arriving. She sees all this going on. And subsequently, I think she was interviewed and she said, you know, she sees Bono. So she sees all this and she sees Bono. And she, and she says, you know, I was always a big fan, but something told me this was probably not the right moment to approach him. <laughs> and, I mean, again, this is laughing. And of course, it's a, it's a, it's a tragic event for, for Ben Dunn himself. But that this is the way Irish history unfolded. So Ben Dunn, He's the millionaire businessman synonymous with the national scandal and eventual fall from grace of our former Taoiseach, Charlie Hawhey. Uh, Mr Dunn died in Dubai last week, age 74, after suspected heart attack. But Fintan, let's now jump back to 1981. Ben Dunn was then the heir to the Dunstore's supermarket business and he worked for his father, Ben Sr. Ben Jr. was 
kidnapped by the IRA while on his way to open a new Dunn's branch and he was held for a week. Why did the IRA go after Ben Dunn and how was he released in the end? So uh, they went after him for a ransom. Um, you know, I, I suppose in a way, from their point of view, uh, it, it was a reasonably soft target. Um, you know, he was just driving. They just, you know, rammed the car, took him apparently to a pig farm in South Armagh. Uh, he was held in a, in a shed for, for six days, as you say. And there have been different reports as to how much money they wanted. The most reliable seems to be that they were looking for half a million pounds, uh, Irish pounds at the time. Which was a lot of money. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of quite a few million uh, euro now, I, w- I would think. This was a huge national drama, of course. So Ben Dunn himself would not have been hugely well known uh, at that time. But of course, Dunn Stores was a, a fact of Irish life already, you know, very much part of just daily existence in Ireland. Um, and of course, the drama, the kidnapping itself was huge. But also it was a big political drama because... Gareth Fitzgerald was Taoiseach at the time, uh, and he was adamant that the police in Ireland should prevent the payment of a ransom. Again, on, on very reasonable grounds, you know, which and a, you know, a lot of governments would have had similar kinds of policies, which was that if you, of course, if you pay a ransom of that, that size, it, it just means that it encourages the IRA to do it again. Uh, and of course, you know, subsequently the IRA did kidnap Don Tidy, who was, who was also, you know, a, a big figure in the retail business. So he was released very suddenly after six days. He was he was taken to a graveyard. You can imagine his trauma, you know, not knowing whether he was going to be shot at any time. The kidnappers gave him as a souvenir three bullets, which they said they had planned to use on him uh, if God. they if the security forces discovered them. You know, they were going to they were going to shoot him. A detail, I suppose, that just gives you a sense of the trauma of this. He he. He was in the grave, jumped in the graveyard. He jumped into an open grave to hide, you know. Um, it, it was never entirely clear what had happened. I, I don't think anybody fully knows. It, yeah. it seems pretty certain that a ransom was paid. I think the Irish Times reported a couple of years later that it was €300,000, which was a lot of money. And then there were lots of different rumours. Um, th- there was a very strong rumour that uh, Patrick Gallagher, who was a property developer, who was also one of the funders of Charlie Hawhey, had paid the money that Hawhey had been involved. Uh, this was strongly denied by, by Ben Dunn himself. He did not believe that to be the case. The, the most um, likely scenario is that um, this, the money was arranged by Ben Dunn Sr., by his father. It is an important thing because it, it in itself, but also, you know, none of us can imagine what the trauma uh, of that experience was for him. He was a young man in his early 30s, you know, and it obviously had a huge impact on the rest of his life. And then we jump 10 years forward to Florida that night in 1992. How did this humiliation for Dunn and his subsequent arrest create such tidal waves back in Ireland? So initially, of course, this was just a... A sort of big scandal story. I mean, of course, everybody in journalism was eating it up. You know, it was mm. it was uh, it was just itself a kind of big big media event. By the way, he was very very lucky. The amount of cocaine he had was way beyond the threshold, which went from possession to trafficking. Okay, so he was very likely to be charged with trafficking. Somehow the search was messed up, <laughs> and <laughs> somehow there were some suspicions around what happened. Um, Mm -hmm. But he was very, very fortunate to be 
charged only with possession and uh, never served jail time. And came home and, and you know, obviously it was, a, it was a huge big media story. At this stage, his father was dead. He had moved on to being the chief executive of John Stores. Mm. It's a hugely successful business. And it, I mean, it is a remarkable business success story. And he, he was obviously in many ways uh, at the heart of its expansion. But his, particularly his sister, Margaret Heffernan, who's a very, very formidable woman in her own right, she decided that the company could not be run by someone who was behaving so erratically, um, mm. you know, and who had such scandal attached to him. Again, you can kind of perfectly understand this from her point of view. So she and the rest of the Dunn family moved basically to oust young Ben, Ben Jr. He resisted this um, and, and there were court cases. So there was, they, were, they were basically suing each other. Admittedly, uh, Fintan, I can't say I remember those days very well. I was just a kid, but you remember them very well, as I can see. How did the general public respond to what happened in 1992? It had all the qualities of a tabloid scandal, you know, mm. cocaine, hookers, you, you know, arrests, all that stuff. It was the story of the day um, for quite a few days. <laughs> mm. um, and then, you know, when Bendon did come back, um, actually, he handled it with great dignity. He, he gave some interviews, spoke about it. He was very contrite. He was very upfront. He was very honest about it. Um, mm. And I think there was a lot of sympathy for him. I mean, I think people understood because of the previous history of the kidnapping and, and all the rest of it, you know, that he was a very troubled man. Okay. And so there wasn't any real hatred for him. Even the shame of it, all that stuff was, it was kind of understood, you know. And you have to remember that it's, it's another f really, I think it's four years before the other side of it emerges. Coming up, Ben Dunn's arrest sets off a chain of events that changes Ireland. Fintan, we were hearing about how the Dunns ended up in court over control of the family company. That process is what resulted in the exposure of huge political and financial corruption in the 1980s and the 1990s in Ireland. And the exposing was done mainly by journalists. How did they do that? I remember vividly when I first met Vincent Brown, uh, the wonderful journalist, uh, an editor and um, anybody who went to work for Vincent Brown in McGill magazine, you were always told the first story you were to, you were to work on to find out was how did Charlie Hawley get his money? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was like a, it was a half a joke, but also um, Vincent was one of the few people who kept asking this question. You know, so yeah. so you, you have to remember Charlie Hawley. I'm I'm 65. Charlie Hawley had been in public office. All my life. <laughs> right? yeah, okay. uh, yeah. Ostensibly, his only income was that of a TD salary or sometimes a minister's salary, <laughs> a private island, a yacht, the finest yeah. Georgian mansion on the east coast of Dublin, of, of Ireland, a stud farm, racehorses, uh, Charvet shirts, you name it. I mean, all that, you know, very, yeah. very obvious, massive wealth. But, you know, c collectively, journalists had been unable to, to really get that story. And it was through the Bendon court case that it emerged. So first, the Irish Independent got one bit of the story, which was that Ben Dunn had been paying Michael Lowry, who was by then a kind of senior Fine Gael minister. He'd been paying Lowry vast hundreds of thousands of pounds through offshore bank accounts. So that emerged first. And then the Irish Times got hold of 
I suppose, the story that everybody in journalism of my generation wanted. <laughs> yeah, it was Cliff Taylor here who got that story. And yeah, as you say, it was everything that had been hidden about about Charlie Hockey up until that point. So what happened next? Yeah, I mean, one of the ironies actually was that um, in the affidavit, Margaret Heffernan said that Ben himself had said that he had given a million pounds, as it was at the time, to Charlie Hockey. One of the ironies here was that he'd given him so much money, he'd forgotten how much money he gave him. <laughs> he'd actually given him oh, 1.8 million. You know, it must be the equivalent now of, what, five, six million. Mm. Vast amounts of money um, to be given to uh, a serving politician, you know. And there were really two aspects to this. Um, so one, obviously, was the fact that Hockey himself was getting this money. Mm-hmm. But also uh, the checks that were made out to an account he had with a private bank uh, called Guinness Mahan, but it was a particular scheme that was run by Hockey's bagman, a guy called Des Trainer. Trainer had set up this extraordinary scheme through uh, Ansbacker Cayman. This was basically a kind of branch of this bank in the Cayman Islands, which is where you you laundered money, basically. Um, In fact, the money was never going to the Cayman Islands. It, It was a a, a complex scheme, basically, where you 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 gave the money to Des Trainer. He set up this secret account. You then borrowed back your own money, uh, at, which uh, meant not only were you not paying tax on it, so you were hiding the money from the, from the tax authorities, but the, the 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 icing on the cake was that you you could claim tax relief on the so-called borrowing. I mean, the level of corruption was just staggering in this. Mm-hmm. Now, you have mm-hmm. to remember the context here, right? Which, which is that this was being done when Ireland was on its knees economically. The public finances were in a, a shocking state. There was mass unemployment. There was mass emigration. Public services were collapsing. And here were people at the very, very centre of power, including the sometime Taoiseach, Charlie Hockey, one of the beneficiaries of the scheme was a director of the central bank. So the, these were the great and the good. They were people who were connected to how he connected to politics, connected to certain kinds of business circles. Uh, and they were just flagrantly evading taxes. So in Cliff Taylor's stories that, you know, it was both the fact that how he was taking the money, but also it became clear that there was this scheme. This led to the establishment of a tribunal of inquiry. Um, the McCracken Tribunal, which looked into both the payments. So it was basically Ben Dunn's payments. Uh, it was the payments to Lowry. It was one module of it. The other module was the payments to Charlie Hawley. And then this this sort of started to unravel the, the larger system of, of corruption. It led then to another tribunal, which looked at the, the broader uh, details of, of Hawley's funding, who, who was paying him off and, and how, which concluded that he had received the equivalent then of about eight million pounds. So huge amounts of money in in corrupt payments while he was in public office. Fintan, Ben Dunn was the central figure in the whole unravelling of the story of this unhealthy relationship between business and politics in Ireland in the 1980s. But do you think, would all the stuff with the tribunals that followed have happened anyway without Dunn? I mean, did we need him and his cocaine-fueled psychosis in 1992 to make it happen? I think the shocking answer to that is yes. Uh, You know, Mm. it's sort of not easy to see how this stuff would have become public otherwise. 
you know, so it's the internal feud within Dunn's stores. If you had not had that internal feud, you would not have had sworn affidavits, which said that these payments had been made. You've got to remember how profoundly corrupting the corruption was. Right? So what I mean by this was that the central bank and the revenue at different points came very, very close to knowing about the Ansbacker stuff. I mean, the central bank inspectors knew that there was this Ansbacker scheme. Some very good, honest inspectors brought this up to higher authorities. And it was basically, don't ask, don't tell. You know, it, it really was. And you see, how could you? I mean, you know, that one of your own, one of the directors of the central bank was, was centrally involved. The Taoiseach was centrally involved. Um, nobody was going to take that on, you know, and it was very like the church. I mean, it was very, it was very like the Casey thing as well. I mean, everybody knew that there was profound sexual corruption in the church, you know, but the system was able to keep that knowledge from ever becoming effective. And the same thing had happened with, with the money. Historians in the future will have to grapple with the fact that these liminal spaces in two hotels in America, you know, are places in which moments unfold that begin processes that will really ultimately bring down this very, very powerful edifice, which was the, the fusion of Catholicism and nationalism, Fianna Fáil and the church. What about Ben Dunn's reputation, Finton? Was it rehabilitated at all in the years following the McCracken and Moriarty tribunals? And did the Irish public forgive him for his involvement in all this? Yeah, it's an odd thing, you know, uh, because he had handled very well the, his disgrace, the, the Florida episode and the way he had come back and, 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 and the way he had presented himself, you know, genuinely very sympathetically. Um, I think that sort of insulated him a little bit from what should have been a lot more public anger. Because after all, yes, I mean, Hawkey was taking the money, but Ben Dunn was giving the money. And actually giving money to somebody in public office like that is a very deeply damaging thing to do to a democracy and and to a country you profess to love. And and he sort of got away with it, you know, the the stories as they emerged as to how he gave Hawkey the money, you know, were so crazily impulsive. The one that people focused on was Ben Dunn out playing golf, drops into Hawhey in, in his mansion in Kinsale, sees him being a bit glum, has a bank order um, in his pocket for £210,000, I think, and impulsively takes it out and says, and that's something for yourself, you know. <laughs> and and Hawhey says, well, it was kind of recorded as thanks a million, big fella, but he, yeah, I think he just said thanks, big fella. Uh, thanks, big fella, you know, and takes the money. And because that was so weird, it took away the fact that, that in fact, most of Dunn's payments to Hawhey were, were very carefully structured. You know, a lot of them were done through a fund that, um, from memory, I think, was established in Hong Kong, you know, and, and it was kind of channeled through there and then into the Ansbacker Cayman accounts, you know, so so it wasn't this sort of you know, strangely impulsive man just on the spur of the moment deciding to give Hawhey some money. And I think in public perception, Ben Dunn got, got away with that. You know, I, I think the idea in people's heads was that he was a kind of strange, impulsive, 
somewhat damaged man for understandable reasons and that that's what happened. Whereas in fact what happened was, was much more thought through and structured. Fintan, finally, do we know what his relationship was like with his family and siblings in the years leading up to his death? Uh, I actually don't know. My sense of it is that he, he went his own way. Margaret Heffernan was a very, very formidable person herself. Um, I actually met both of them when I was 14. I, I worked <sighs> in Dunstores in Georgia Street in Dublin, um, which was their headquarters, you know, and Margaret would be around sometimes. And, you know, she was a, even then she was a formidable person. Ben, I spent half a day with Ben, you know, the two of us on our own. Uh, and you know, looking back on it, it was such a weird, weird thing. I was 14. I was uh, being paid 15 pence an hour. He was the princeling. He was probably, what, 23, 24. Mm-hmm. And the two of us had to spend an afternoon. Duns had bought a clothes shop, bought out a clothes shop, which was across the road and, and up, up the road. The two of us spent an afternoon going from the clothes shop they'd bought out, moving the stock on wheeled rails, dresses and stuff, pushing them out the door, up the street, across the road, back down the road to done stores. I, I was, was hours and hours doing this, and it was the most ridiculously awkward thing to be doing, and it was him and me. Now, for me, like, I, I was a kid, I was doing, just doing what I was told. Like, why on earth was the, the princeling doing this? You know, why didn't they just get a van? <laughs> you know? And, and uh, it's only subsequently it struck me, of course, that it was his father humiliating him. It was his father you know, making it clear to him that he was the boy. You know, he, he, he was on the same level as a scrawny 14-year-old kid from Crumlin who was being paid 15 pence an hour. You know, he was going to do this manual labour. This is the weird thing in these families, you know, you can watch Succession or whatever and you get all that stuff, you know, but the psychology of the whole thing was probably fascinating. I think Ben then felt he had, he had paid his dues. You know, it was, his, it was his right to be the king of Dunstores. He, he went off and he founded his own businesses. You know, he set up his, his gyms, for example. You know, he had plenty of money. Uh, but I, I, I cannot imagine that he ever reconciled himself after having been raised to be Mr. Dunstores um, to the fact that, that he, was, he was in exile. He was the, the prince over the water right up until his death. Vinton, thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Sirka. That's all for today. For more reporting on the death and legacy of Ben Dunn, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Pollock. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.